We do want to spend some time in this passage in Isaiah 54. Uh, As I said, the appearance of the servant of God in the person of Jesus is that very thing that we've been celebrating all this Advent season. Uh, Augustine said, he, though, he through whom time was made was made in time. And he, older by eternity than the world itself, was then younger in age than many of his servants in the world. He who made man was made man. He was given existence by a mother whom he brought into existence. He was carried in hands which he formed. That's the wonder of the Incarnation. When the eternal Son of God became Jesus of Nazareth, not only did your Creator enter bodily into this creation, but He came as that promised servant of God to rescue sinners like you and me. He appeared not to judge, but to be condemned in our place. He appeared not in wrath, but to suffer under God's wrath as our substitute. That he would suffer so that we might be forgiven is a precious part of the gospel. When you grasp what it costs the Son of God to remove your sin, then how could he not become precious to you? But as Isaiah goes on into chapter 54 and beyond, we see that the forgiveness of our sins by his sacrifice himself is not the end of the gospel. The effects of the servant's work reverberate on, accomplishing far more than we could have imagined. And as you and I step into this new year, we need to grasp again the good news, not only of what Jesus has done for us, but also what that means for our today and our tomorrow. We need to grasp the implications, the effects of his work and what they mean for here and now. Because for every person who looks forward to the new year with optimistic resolutions, there are several of us who are tired of resolutions that depend on our weak resolve. But the Lord has given us here something far better than wishful thinking. He gifts those who are weary with sustaining words that put courage back into our hearts. He gives you His word that the death and resurrection of His servant Jesus will produce even more than the forgiveness of sins. Things will change for us, and they're going to change because of His resolve, not ours. And here in chapter 54, what we we learn is that because of the servants appearing two miraculous things are going to happen. First, in verses 1 through 3, a barren woman will have more children than the woman who's married. And second, in verses 4 through 10, a shattered marriage is going to be restored. So first, the barren woman will have many children. You probably already know how highly valued children were in the ancient world. Children were the ones who would take care of you when you got old. 
because of mortality rates, it would be better to have many children than just a few, because if only three out of eight survived into full adulthood, then you would still have someone to look after you. But children weren't just good for the individual. In this time, this era of warring tribes and hostile neighbors, the whole community depended on large families for protection because a dwindling tribe could be easily conquered. A mother with many sons was basically a national hero because she was providing for the security of the community. And that's why the shame of barrenness was so great. Not only did a barren woman individually experience the pain of unfulfilled longing, but her personal and communal hope for a future felt cut off. Such unfruitfulness felt more like a living death. But that was actually Israel as a whole nation. That was their story. Israel had been called by God to be a light to the nations. Through their faith and obedience, Israel was supposed to be a spiritual mother, bearing many sons. As the nations around her saw the glory of Yahweh and the beauty of His ways and joined themselves to His people. But Israel was barren. Theirs is a history of unfruitfulness because of their unfaithfulness to God. Their experience was like a living death because they failed to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth with worshipers of Yahweh. For centuries, the shame of their spiritual barrenness, both as individuals and as a community, the shame of their barrenness was deep. But the servant of God changes everything. The Lord caused him to become that light to the nations. The, the nations would be attracted to him and love him and serve him. He would be that fruitful one who brings many sons to see and enjoy the glory of God. And so here in chapter 54, after the servant works and because of his work, verse 1 says, Now the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. God is telling his people, enlarge your tent, make room. Because they're about to increase in number so much that they're going to need the space. In verse 3, they're going to be so fruitful that the Lord says, Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. He's giving them a hope for the future that because, uh, uh, because what was once a tiny remnant of believers, what was once a tiny group of believers in Yahweh will grow so numerous that they cover the whole earth. In a partial sense, God's people experienced a fruitful time when they, when they returned from exile. The days of Ezra and Nehemiah saw renewed faithfulness to the Lord. It saw these once desolate cities repopulated. However, that hardly seems to exhaust the promise about their offspring possessing the nations. 
And that's why even in their day, the faithful kept waiting for God to keep his promise. But it really shouldn't surprise us that it isn't until Jesus comes that the real fulfillment of this promise begins to happen. When the servant of God comes and he does his work, the once spiritually barren becomes miraculously fruitful. The power of the Holy Spirit clothes the apostles and the church, the true Israel, the church becomes a fruitful mother. People from all nations are born again by the Spirit, and the people of God increase exponentially in number. That's exactly what we have been studying in the book of Acts. Uh, That's a fulfillment of this promised fruitfulness. And you yourselves, you yourselves, have been welcomed into the shade of this expanding tent where God lives with his people. The Apostle Paul recognizes that when he quotes Isaiah 54 in Galatians 4. If you look at verse 27, he quotes this, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And to whom does he apply that? Who is he telling to sing? He applies it to people like you, who through Jesus Christ have been born from above, born from the Holy Spirit, from heaven, and who through faith in Christ experience this miraculous new birth. You know that you and I could never have done anything about our spiritual barrenness. But through Jesus and by the power of His Spirit, God has made you to be a part of His fruitful mother, the church. And He is going to make you fruitful too. That's your hope for this coming year. Spiritual fruitfulness. And it's yours because Jesus is the servant of God who won it for you. And so I want you to pray this year. Pray for the Father to do for you what He has promised. Ask for His Spirit to bear much fruit in you and through you. It's not even about you finding something new to do this year. Ask Him to help you bear fruit in all the places and in all the relationships that He's already given you. I do want you to consider how God may make you more fruitful individually. One of the things that's been on my mind lately is equipping and encouraging us to do evangelism and outreach in a culture that is either Christian, merely in the cultural sense, as much of the South is, or to do evangelism and outreach toward a culture that is either hot that is hostile toward Christianity and yet desperately needs a warm and winsome and intellectually credible witness to surprise it and challenge its assumptions about Christ. If God tells us, as he does in this passage, enlarge your tent to make room for new believers, then that has to mean something for us as individuals What might it look like to make room at your dinner table for non-Christians to come and encounter Christ in you 
in ways that will surprise probably them and you. But consider, too, how he might do that through us together. You know that we have continued to add new members to Trinity, and that means we are busting at the seams in our classrooms, and if we didn't have two services, then we'd be busting out of the seams here. And that's why this coming August, the elders plan to pick up a conversation that we put on hold when the pandemic started. We're going to talk, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but we're going to talk about making room here at Trinity. Yes, we, uh, we want to support church planting, and we do. We want to look outside of ourselves. But we also want to be the strongest mother church that we can be in order to fulfill our mission of making and equipping mature disciples of Jesus right here in Trinity, even as we support the wider church. We, we don't know what's going to happen from that conversation. But if God encourages people in verse 2 saying, do not hold back, then he's encouraging some kind of generous participation, generous preparation on our part. And we need to think about what that means. But whatever the Lord has for Trinity in the coming year, whether we grow, whether we don't, God's promise to his church about bearing fruit is deeply encouraging to people who know what spiritual barrenness is like. But that hope is actually sustained and it grows when we see the second miraculous thing that flows from the servant's work. We've already seen a barren woman giving birth, but second, look at verses 4 through 10. A shattered marriage will be restored. Throughout the prophets, Israel's relationship to the Lord is described in terms of husband and wife. Yahweh chose Israel as his bride. He married her, making a covenant with her when he brought her out of Egypt. She promised that she would be faithful to him. She embraced him then as her husband. She knew his love and his powerful protection. He provided for her. He beautified her. He lavished gifts on her. His kindness to her was constant. He never wronged her. But she rejected him. In her heart and in her actions, she left him again and again. She took new lovers, thinking them better, stronger, with more to offer. Forsaking her husband, Israel was an unfaithful wife, and so the Lord, like any reasonable husband, sent her away. Only when she got what she wanted, life apart from Yahweh with her other lover, Babylon, then she felt the pain of separation. That's the pain that we see in verse 6 where Israel is described as a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. The focus here is not so much on her guilt, that's understood, but rather the focus here is on her agonizing experience of estrangement. It's the pain of knowing 
that her husband was right to send her away, and yet the bitterness of that remains. But the grace here in these verses is that the Lord understands her pain and He is not harsh with her. He's not pleased at the sight of her pain. No, He seeks to relieve her pain by speaking so, so gently to her. He understands that if he remains silent, his wife is going to spiral in shame and fear. And so he says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You will not be disgraced. And he names himself again as her husband, assuring her in verses 7 and 8 that her unworthiness cannot, will not turn away his unconditional steadfast love. His momentary rejection of her has ended. He is again gathering her into his arms. Her very real sin against him will not cool his warm compassion because he is both her husband and her redeemer. You know what the accuser says to people like us, to sinners like us. He says, fear now. Even our own hearts tell us, you're going to be rejected because of what you've done. But the Lord says to you and me, people with guilty records and hearts that are still prone to wander, He says, fear not. With great compassion, I will gather you to myself. My marriage to my people is permanent. For a moment, you were deserted, but never again. But how does that work? How can a husband welcome back such a wife? The key is in verse 7. Look there, where God says, I deserted you. But he promises to never desert her again. That desertion is abandonment. It's forsakenness. And it's the same word that shows up in Psalm 22, where someone says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus saying when he says that on the cross? Jesus is saying, I am getting abandoned so that you don't have to. God is deserting me here so that you will never experience His forsaking anger. I am sealing with my own blood the covenant of peace that will never be taken away from you. I am your Redeemer. I am the servant of God. I, I am paying the price. I've heard it put like this. If you have a friend who comes to your house and he, through stupidity or maybe even anger, breaks your chair, he he turns to you and says, oh, I'm sorry for breaking your chair. There are only two things that can happen. One is you can say, I'm glad you're sorry, but you're going to pay for it. Here's how much the chair costs. You can make him pay for it. Or you can say, I forgive you, I forgive you, forget it, forget it, forget it. In which case, you pay for the chair. Or you don't get another chair, which 
technically means you're still paying for the chair because now you lack a chair. And so you see what's going on here. When a wrong is done, someone always pays. Always, always, always. Either the person pays or the person is forgiven and the forgiver pays. Somebody always pays. Always. And so how? How can God promise a permanent marriage to his people? How can we know for sure that the kind of relationship that the Lord describes in verses 9 and 10, a relationship that outlasts mountains, how can we be sure that such a promise will hold up? He, he says that a turning point has happened so that these are like the days of Noah to him. He promised then that the waters would never then, never again cover the earth in judgment. And that, we know, is a promise that he has kept. And in the same way, he promises that he will never be angry with his people again. How can that be? What's the turning point? How have you passed into a new permanent age where God can't, won't be angry with you? Are you not prone to wander? Are we not prone to leave the God we love? How can he promise that his steadfast love will never depart and that his covenant of peace will never be removed from people like us who will struggle with sin this year just like last year? How can he do that? Another asks, how can God forgive us for the wrongs we've done to him? How can God forgive us for the wrongs we've done to each other? And even to the world around us, how can God forgive us for the wrongs that we have made and we've made such a mess of this world? How can he forgive? We know. If he forgives, if he doesn't make us pay, he has to pay. On the cross, God came in the person of Jesus Christ and he cosmically and infinitely paid the price, got the abandonment, got the forsakenness, got the judgment, so that it doesn't have to fall on us. Only through the cross can we see how the Maker can be your husband, how the Holy One of Israel can be your God. Only the cross will explain how this healed marriage can be permanent. And this is God's promise to His people today and tomorrow. Because Jesus went to the cross, because He paid, you will not be separated from your heavenly husband for even a moment this year. Not because of your sin, not by any painful circumstance. I, I know that the metaphor is actually tricky here because God's people are called His wife in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament are called the Bride of Christ and we're waiting for the wedding supper of the Lamb at the dawn of the age to come. But I want you to track with the main idea here. God is saying that you are reconciled to Him. Not partially, not contingently not conditionally based on your good behavior. Already, your sins are paid for. Already, he views you as his spotless bride with whom he finds no fault. And now, when you are at your worst, that is actually when he, his compassion is at its warmest toward you. 
That's what it means for the person who is found in Christ, who belongs to Christ. Now, if that sounds crazy to you, let me invite you again to join us for that Sunday school class that starts next week at 1015. You're going to learn a lot more about the heart of God towards sinners and sufferers as we study that book, Gentle and Lowly. Lots of copies out there. Grab one if you haven't already. But you have to hear that for the Christian, every moment of our experience must be seen and understood through this gospel lens that because of Christ, God does not deal with you in anger. Yes, there may be discipline. God's chastening love may feel sharp. And His mercies are sometimes severe. But that is all a part of His steadfast love for His people. It's still a part of Him gathering you into Himself, correcting, wooing your heart that is prone to look for life apart from Him. Those are the miracles that the servant accomplishes. And did you notice that there's only one requirement for you? Do you want to experience these miracles today and tomorrow and into the age to come? Which is what we're going to talk about next week. This says there's only one way for the barren to become fruitful. There's only one way for a shattered marriage to be restored. There's only one way for you to forget your shame and enjoy the large and growing family of God. There is only one way that you will be able to burst into song this new year, and it won't because of any job or relationship or financial windfall. Look at verse 6. The Lord has called you. The only way that you are going to sing this year is if you do this. Answer the call. Through His Son, His servant, Jesus, your husband, your maker, your redeemer, He woos you to Himself. Answer His call simply by turning to Christ in faith again. Trusting Him beyond what your fears shout out to you. Turn again from other lovers who promise everything but only give you pain. Answer His call by clinging again to Christ who gives Himself to you without reserve. This morning, look at the table He's prepared for you. See how He gathers you back, even at great cost to Himself. Believe again and answer His call. He speaks through His body and His blood, and He says to you, fear not. You'll forget the shame of your youth because your Maker is your husband. I won't be angry with you. The mountains may depart, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for this Word that assures our hearts. Father, would you, again, give us hearts that hear your word and respond to it in faith. Lord, give us eyes of faith to see Christ as he, our lover, our husband, our redeemer, offers himself to us. By your grace, Lord, strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name.